This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Thank you for joining us. If you hadn't tuned in, there'd be not much point to this program. So I really hope you get something helpful out of it. Those of you who've been following the series of programs will know that we've been making some progress on the graduated path to enlightenment. However, if you've only tuned in today, the topic we're looking at is how to transform the difficulties of life into something useful rather than troublesome. Last week we went through a few ways of looking at things differently to keep our peace of mind, and we'll be continuing with that today. But first, let's set our motivation as we normally do. Remember that motivation is the most important part of any action, as it defines whether the action is positive or negative. As that is the case, it would be helpful for us to set the best motivation we can for every action we do, and so make sure that it doesn't turn out badly for us in the future. Doing something with a bodhicitta motivation is the best, because the focus is so vast. Remember, bodhicitta is the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to benefit all beings everywhere, so its field of endeavor is not small. However, some people might think that helping every other being in the universe is too much of a task, so work just for their own eventual happiness. So if you are one of those, please set your motivation accordingly. But let's not any of us set a motivation that only takes this life into consideration. If we do that, the benefit will probably be so small that we might as well not bother, or we, might, we won't get what we want at all. Thank you. Within the graduated path, we've been following a particular test called the Seven Points of Mind Training, written by a highly realized monk called Chikawa. This mind training applies particularly to people who want to develop bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment, because that's the best way to help all other beings. As I said before, last week we considered some techniques for changing our reactions to difficulties that arise in our lives, so that the difficulties become useful rather than hindrances to our spiritual progress. One thing we know for sure is that this life we're going to in this life we're going to come up against many problems. We're going to encounter things we don't want, and we're not always going to get the things we want. Of course, we can go through life always expecting things to go our way, and then complain miserably when they don't. But does this really help? If we look at the state of our complaining mind, is it happy or not? And when we grizzle to others, does it make them happy or not? I must say, I don't feel at all good if someone always finds something to moan about around me. Wouldn't it be much better if when things go wrong, we could cast our reaction in such a light that our minds stay happy, or at least not upset? Do you remember from last week how we can do this? The first suggestion was to see misfortune as a way to clear our negative karma. Most of us ordinary people cart eons of negative karma around with us. When the conditions are right, that negative karma will ripen into a result of suffering for us. So, from the Tibetan Buddhist point of view, when something bad happens, it's the result of negative karma arising. So instead of being unhappy, we can think, this is great. I'm getting rid of some of this load of painful rubbish I've burdened myself with. Once this is gone, 
I won't ever have to suffer the results of that particular karma again. It'll be finished. Thinking like that, we won't have the need to complain or make a fuss about the painful situations that arise for us. They can become helpful on our path to enlightenment. When we always expect things to go well for us, we really are being unrealistic. Everything is subject to impermanence, so things going well will inevitably change for the worse, just as bad things will duly get better. If we understand this, when unwanted things occur, we can just put it down to impermanence and karma, and then, keeping a carefree mind, we don't create more negative karma, but actually do the opposite. Trouble also helps us to develop renunciation. As long as we think that this world, this type of existence is okay and pleasurable, we will never want to get out of samsara. It's only when we see it as a pit of scorpions, as one master puts it, that we will develop the necessary energy to practice our way out of it. So when painful situations occur, they can help us to see the real nature of samsara and give us the impetus to think, I really have to get out of this. I really must find the state of perfect peace. I can't stand this any longer. We need that way of thinking to keep us going because the path to enlightenment is long and we need constant reminders that the pleasures of samsara are all poisonous and to be avoided. Painful situations do that. They also help us to develop compassion. For although we may suddenly hit a very uncomfortable situation, we can be sure that many others in this world are in a much worse situation than ourselves. We're never the only ones suffering. Everyone is, and some are in really dire situations. I am not the only one, so why should I make such a fuss of my suffering when so many others are in so much worse off than me? When we think like this, our suffering doesn't seem so bad, and we can make the wish that everyone be of su free of suffering. This leads to the thought that it would be wonderful if I could attain enlightenment, for then not only would I be free of this and all other suffering, but I could help all others as well. Developing such compassion and a sense of renunciation again creates positive karma out of difficulty, and so makes the difficulty a help on the path to enlightenment. Another positive quality we can develop in difficult times is patience. Worrying about things just makes them worse. But if we take our suffering patiently, thinking it is exhausting our negative karma, we are developing another quality that we really need for enlightenment. Last week I spoke about the beggar woman with leprosy sitting on the side of the road, missing fingers and toes, but with such patience and good cheer that it put complaining rich westerners to shame. So when people scold or criticize us, or get angry with us, it's much more helpful to stay patient and not retaliate. Again, retaliation creates negative karma, whereas patience leads to freedom from suffering. His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says that our enemy is our best friend, because it's our enemy that really allows us to practice patience. Our friends are mostly kind and sympathetic, and hardly ever give us the opportunity to practice the patience our enemies do. The more we practice renunciation, compassion and patience, the more calm and peaceful our mind will become. Now in the and in the future, this will be of real benefit to us.
Another thing we can remember to help us is that things don't exist as we think they do. Nothing has its own concrete solid existence, but just exists as a collection of causes, conditions and parts, and the label the mind gives it. If I think about myself, I'm a collection of psychophysical bits and pieces trying to operate together and the label Tenzin. I have no other existence than that. Of course, the psychophysical aggregates only come together and stay together because of certain causes and conditions. But there's no independent little bloke in the driving seat, no inherent me, if you like, driving this collection. There's just the collection moving forward under the sway of causes and conditions. And everything is like this. I only get upset if I think there's a real independent me being harmed by a real independent other person or situation. So by changing my way of viewing things, I will also not suffer as much. Now this, of course, is difficult to do, but ultimately it's the best way to deal with difficulties because the whole of the Buddha's teachings is geared to realizing the nature of reality. The final method we talked about dealing with suffering was the practice called Tonglen, or giving and taking. This we described and, and practiced in a previous program on exchanging self for others. Basically, we imagine taking on all the suffering of others and giving them all our happiness. Although it may seem, seem difficult to do, it's a very powerful practice. Last week I talked about a monk dying of cancer who used this practice extensively and so experienced very little suffering and to the end had a very joyful and peaceful mind. So these are all practices we can do to turn the inevitable suffering in our lives into happy steps on the path to enlightenment. Otherwise, if all we can do is complain and worry, our suffering just becomes the causes for more and more samsaric misery. These practices might sound difficult, but if we practice them regularly, we can become familiar and later they will become very easy to us when we need them. Now we're going on to the part of this text that covers how to practice on a daily basis during our lifetime. Geshe Chikawa's text reads, The brief essential instruction is, blend the practice of one life in with the five forces. Of the instructions on Mayana transference, the five forces are the most important practice. The first two lines of this short verse contain instructions of how to use the five forces during our life, and the second two lines talk about the five forces at death time. And no doubt you're about to ask what the five forces are, so we'll go through them one by one. Remember, this is all particular to training in bodhicitta, the mind wanting to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. Using the five forces at death time, we can transfer our consciousness to a higher rebirth so that we can continue our spiritual practice again in coming lives. The first is the force of the beneficial intention. Basically, this means that you make a very strong commitment to practice exchanging self for others both now and in the future. One commentary says that when we get up in the morning, we make a firm determination that for the rest of the day we will practice the mind training and exchanging self for others. Then when we go to bed at night, we repeat the determination, thinking that we will continue these practices as strongly in the day to come. Doing this continually day after day makes a powerful impression on the mind, so that in the future 
This bodhicitta motivation will rise without any effort. Then the second force is that of familiarity. Here we try to make everything we experience during the day a practice of bodhicitta. Showering in the morning, we might think, may I wash away the suffering of all living beings and give them bliss. Then as we eat during the day, we develop the motivation by eating this food, may I nourish all living beings with the realization of cherishing others. If we see an animal that has been killed by a car lying on the side of the road, we can develop the intention, may I take on that being suffering of death and may I lead them to the deathless state of enlightenment. Any of our daily activities can be transformed in this way from something that's just an activity to benefit this life to something that becomes a practice of exchanging self for others and a cause for developing bodhicitta and gaining enlightenment. So doing this, our familiarity will quickly grow. The next force, the third of the five, is the force of the white seed. Through the teachings and explanations we've had, even through this radio program, we now have the seed of the full realization of exchanging self for others on our mind stream. It's a seed in the sense that it has the potential to become something great, but it's not yet fully developed. Like an acorn is only the potential for a great oak tree. The seed needs nourishing before it can bloom and realize its full potential. And so we create as many virtuous activities as we can with a motivation to gain this realization. It's like planting the acorn and then providing it with water, fertilizer, warmth and so on so that it will eventually become the great oak we want it to. The moisture, fertilizer and so on for the seed of the realization of exchanging self for others are the virtuous actions that we do motivated by wanting to achieve the realization. Of course, we can do many virtuous activities but the scope of the result depends on the motivation. Good actions done just for their happiness in this life, like a good reputation and so on, will not nourish the white seed we're talking about here, and their effects cannot extend beyond this life. The realization of exchanging self for others doesn't mean just getting to know about it intellectually. It means that our whole outlook is changed from putting ourselves first to seeing others as much more important than ourselves, and so working to attain enlightenment to benefit them. It is important to realize that this is not just a philosophical belief, but something that becomes the driving force in our lives. In the same way, it is in the life of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He works tirelessly to be of benefit to the many beings in this world, and I mean tirelessly. He is constantly traveling, giving teachings and advice, writing books, encouraging people, supporting the Tibetans both inside and out of Tibet. From my experience of him, he doesn't even have the one thought for himself. All his energy is directed to being the best assistance he can to others. Some years ago, I went to Bodhgaya in India to take teachings from His Holiness, and one day after the day's teachings, I was talking to somebody who had seen His Holiness return to the place he was staying later in the day. Evidently, His Holiness had many duties after the teaching and had been out and about. The person I was talking to said that when His Holiness came back, he was obviously very tired. But some Tibetans who had made the arduous trip from Tibet to come to the teachings were there, and he stopped to talk to them. 
He listened to the stories of incredible hardship they were living through in Tibet, and by the end of it, His Holiness was crying. When he finally went inside, he was exhausted. You have to know that that for Tibetans, and especially those who live in Tibet, meeting His Holiness makes their whole life meaningful. Meeting His Holiness is the greatest blessing they can receive. His Holiness could have just passed the waiting Tibetans by and gone inside, but he didn't consider his own weariness. He stopped and gave them whatever time and energy he had, even though it it completely exhausted him. It is this complete devotion to the welfare of others that characterizes the realization of exchanging self for others. I must say, I do admire it hugely, and looking at the Dalai Lama, I'm nowhere near practicing it yet. Force number four is the force of destruction. That sounds awfully dire, doesn't it? But it means destruction of all the obstructions to our realization of exchanging self for others. Basically, it means being mindful of what is going on in our internal world and and when self-cherishing arises, applying the opposing forces to it. Of course, in the beginning, self-cherishing will arise a lot because that's what we're most accustomed to. And even trying to practice cherishing others is very difficult because of the strength of our self-cherishing. But the more we apply the opposite forces to self-cherishing, the weaker it will eventually become and our realization of cherishing others will have more room to grow. The last force of the five is the force of dedication. A dedication accompanies motivation, or is at the other end of the action, if you like. As you will know, virtuous activities accumulate merit or positive potential, and so after we've completed such activities, it's a good idea to dedicate the merit, particularly to the realization of bodhicitta and Buddhahood. By this merit, may I quickly attain the realization of exchanging self for others and attain enlightenment to benefit all other living beings. Something like that. Also, any aspiration or prayers you may you make to gain Buddhahood come under this form of dedication. At the end of the day, we can look back on whatever positive actions we did and, rejoicing, dedicate the positive potential we've accumulated to the realization of exchanging self for others. So that is how to practice the five forces during our lifetime. We can also practice them at the time of death, and as I said before, they help to transfer transfer our consciousness to good rebirth so we can continue our spiritual practice. Here is how to practice the five forces at the time of death. Firstly, as death approaches, we can make a strong determination to practice the bodhicitta mind training in the intermediate state between lives as well as in coming lives. This is the force of beneficial intention. If we are very familiar with this intention at death time, it will have a very good chance of arising in the intermediate state, even if we don't have much awareness or control at that time. Practicing the second force at the time of death, up to the time we lose conceptual consciousness, we remain mindful of the mind training and transform whatever suffering we are experiencing into the qualities of compassion, renunciation and wisdom as we explained last week and in the beginning of this program. 
The Tibetans train in lying in what is called the lion posture for death. It is the posture that Shakyamuni Buddha was in when he died. You lie on your right side with your right hand under your head and your left arm lying along the length of your body on the left side. You've probably seen quite a few statues of the Buddha in this pose. There are certainly some huge ones in Thailand, Sri Lanka and Vietnam and other places in Asia. While lying in this posture, practice Tong Len, the practice of taking on others' suffering as you breathe in and giving them all your happiness and merit as you breathe out. You do this until your last breath, such as the advice for practicing the power of familiarity at death time. I think you'll have to be very familiar with this practice if you're going to remember to do it at death time all the way up to your last breath. But that's what the advice is. Then, to nourish and protect the white seed at the death, a time of death, we make sure we give away all our possessions and wealth to others before we die. In the Asian countries, devotees would make offerings to the local temple and its monks. Otherwise, we can give all our wealth to the poor or to our relatives and friends so that we no longer have attachment for anything when death comes. Of course, giving possessions away doesn't mean only the physical, physical act of giving. We have to let go with our minds as well. It's perfectly useless giving away something while we're still clutching it in our minds. That is a good way to achieve unhappiness and the intention not to give again. Giving properly at death time means that attachment will not become an obstacle that could propel us into one of the lower realms. Giving away all our possessions also creates merit and that will help us gain a good life in the future so we can continue our Buddhist practice to gaining enlightenment. Again, the giving has to be purely motivated to gain such merit. We're not going to get much merit if we give our wealth to a cousin just to spite a brother we don't like. Our generosity has to be motivated to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. It is said that we should leave this life as a bird leaves a bare rock without giving so much as a backward glance to it. And generosity is the first of the six perfections that we have to totally realize before we can attain Buddhahood. So this practice at death time will be an excellent step in the right direction. The force of destruction at the time of death reflects what we said about it during a lifetime's practice. The main obstacle to attaining a happy rebirth is the attachment that makes us grasp at the wealth, possessions and friends we have accumulated during, during life. Of course, such attachment is motivated by self-cherishing and it means that non-virtuous minds will probably arise at death time and these will have the power to propel us into a suffer suffering rebirth. If we do purification practices like the four opponent powers at death time, as we did during life, we can free the mind of some of the negativity and have a better chance of getting a good rebirth. So it's easy to see how important it is to have a virtuous, peaceful mind at the time of death. At death, the force of dedication means that we dedicate all our positive potential to our spiritual teachers and the Buddhas and make prayers that we will never be separated from such teachers and always be able to practice the mind training in bodhicitta. Now, if we can really practice these five forces at the time of death, we're sure to get a good rebirth. Very high monks have a method to influence their students' consciousnesses in the intermediate state so that they have good rebirths, 
even if they were headed for somewhere not so comfortable. However, these five forces are a way we can transfer our own consciousness to a good rebirth. If we can apply them well at death, we will not need the assistance of a greatly realized master. Nevertheless, I guess it would be best to have both, the practice of the five forces and the blessings of a great teacher, just to be sure we don't make a mistake and go to the wrong place. Now we have practiced the mind training for some time as well as we can, how do we know that it actually is having some effect? How do we know whether we are succeeding or not? We can look for six signs of success which Geshe Chikawa's text describes like this. All Dharma is condensed into one purpose. Hold the principle of the two witnesses. Always rely on the happy mind alone. The indication of having transformed is a reversed attitude. The sign of having trained is possessing the five greatnesses. One is trained if capable even when distracted. Let's quickly go through these before the program comes to an end. The whole purpose of the Buddha's teachings is to subdue our unruly mind and so the first line, all Dharma is condensed into one purpose, indicates that if we notice our mind becoming more peaceful and less overwrought, the mind training is being successful. The next line says, hold the principle of the two witnesses. The two witnesses are the internal and external changes in our behavior and attitude. The main one of the two is the internal change. So if we notice that our mental attitude is changing for the better, it is the principal indication we are achieving the purpose of the mind training. The third line, always rely on a happy mind alone, is pretty self-explanatory. Whether external circumstances are good or bad, always meeting them with a joyful attitude means we are being successful. Due to our familiarity, we usually follow unwholesome minds motivated by self-cherishing. The fourth line says, the indication of having transformed is a reversed attitude. A reversed attitude is one that does the opposite of self-cherishing. We only rely on wholesome minds motivated by cherishing others. If we see this ha is happening in our minds, we can give ourselves a metaphorical pat on the back. The sign of having trained is possessing the five greatnesses. The fifth line indicates that if our behavior has changed so, that, so it becomes that of a great bodhisattva, a great holder of restraint, a great ascetic, a great trainer in virtue, and a great yogi, we are being successful in mind training. Hmm, sounds very daunting, doesn't it? And lastly, if we can still have a bodhicitta motiv motivation even while we're not concentrating, but doing things like eating, talking and so on, we fit the final line that goes, one is trained if capable even when distracted. Well, I have to say, I for one have a long way to go before be getting to those six stages. But as my teacher used to say, slowly, slowly. Now this is where we have to part for the week. Thank you for joining the program, and please do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive energy from the program to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. Thank you, and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.